Hey guys, welcome to a bonus episode of What the Actual F. My name is Harmony and let's begin. Also, quick note before we begin, you will not hear snoring for at least a few moments because Binks is currently awake right next to me. I don't know if you could hear that, but that was him just sitting next to me licking his face because that's what bulldogs do. And he also snorts because he's a very scrunchy face and he's so cute. Okay, enough about my adorable dog. Let's begin for real. So many years ago, I actually lived in Connecticut. I lived in a beautiful area called Gales Ferry. I love everything about New England. It's beauty, it's architecture, it's homes, it's well manicured lawns that just line beautiful streets, cascading hills, and just, it's so beautiful out there. Especially coming from Florida, the most flat place Ever. Hot too, did I mention hot yet? Probably not, but yeah, it's like hell here. So why am I talking about New England and Connecticut? Well, that's because our story today takes place in Cheshire, Connecticut. What did I just say? Cheshire, Connecticut. What was Connecticut? What? Cheshire is actually known for two things. It is the bedding plant capital of Connecticut and also home to some of the most brutal murders to ever occur. That would be the slaying of a mother and her two daughters. It was an absolutely horrific event that would leave shockwaves in this otherwise extremely peaceful and close-knit community. It would leave such a dark stain on the town that the locals would kind of refer to it as their very own 9-11. That's pretty fucking dark. Before these murders would occur in July of 2007, Cheshire would be your typical New England town. It even boasts several public parks, tennis courts, and a community pool. It was a very beautiful, welcoming, and safe place to live, a place that you would want to raise your family. Which is exactly what brought Joshua Kamisharzewski and the Pettit family to Cheshire. These two families, although completely unknowing of one another, Joshua living in town with his girlfriend Caroline, and the Pettit family just making memories with their two daughters enjoying all that they have. But who could foresee that one trip to a grocery store would merge these two families to a point that the whole world 
would know about them. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and ghouls, if you would like to stick around, allow me to tell you the very disturbing tale of the Cheshire Murders. Again, facts like that I can't comment okay. on. All I can tell you right now is that we do have three confirmed fatalities. Um, two female, and we're still checking. And the male survivor. Survivor was a male. And you're Upon arrival at the victim's residence, the first officer observed two male subjects exit private residence and also observed the private residence fully engulfed in flame. The suspect vehicle rammed the Cheshire police officer's car and continued on Sorghum Mill Road. Tonight, police removed the body of one of the victims after a home invasion leaves a mother and her two daughters dead. The suspects, 26-year-old Joshua Komizarjewski of Cheshire and 44-year-old Stephen Hayes of Winstead, were caught while trying to escape in the Pettit's car. Now, the only question remains that why did this happen to the Pettit family? So, of course, we've made it a few moments into this podcast, and guess who's already passed out? Yeah, that's right, Binks. Anyways, we're going to go to 1985 to really begin our story. This would be when William Pettit Jr. would go on to meet Jennifer Hawk. William would become to be called Bill more often than not, so we're going to refer to him as Bill as well. Now, he met Jennifer and quickly was just taken aback by her. He was swooning over her instantly. Jennifer worked as a nurse at the hospital that he was a local medical student at. William was on his third year doing medical rounds when he first saw her and immediately he wanted to impress her. He wanted her attention. He actually acted a lot like a self-confessed know-it-all. Someone who really liked to mansplain and basically come up to women and be like, if he liked you, he'd be like, no, hey, hey, you're doing that totally wrong. Allow me to show you how to do it. You just do it like this, okay? Yeah, you like that? I'm a man. Well, Jennifer was like, okay, <laughs> that's not my thing. I don't like that. So if you like me, let me just tell you, you're going about this wrong. Like, I'm not kidding. Jennifer actually stood up to Bill and was like, hey, I think you are doing something to get my attention. You're trying to impress me, but you're kind of coming off like an asshole. So if you like me and you don't want to be perceived like that, maybe stop. And from that moment forward, he never acted like he just, he wasn't being this know-it-all. He didn't try to fix what she was doing. He didn't correct her. It seemed like smooth sailing and the two ended up getting married. Of course, Jennifer was patient with him because he didn't just like change overnight, but he really cared about her. So she became Jennifer Pettit. The couple would go on to have two daughters, Haley, who would be born in October of 1989, and then Michaela, born in November of 1995. Sadly, though, in 1998, Jennifer would actually be diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So I'm going to go ahead and share a little fact here. The cause for multiple sclerosis is actually unknown, but it is considered an autoimmune disease. So as somebody who does live with an autoimmune disease, this shit wreaks havoc on your fucking life. I don't have MS. I am diagnosed with lupus and this shit will knock my ass down. There are days that I feel like I can run a goddamn marathon. And then there are other days that I don't have any spoons. I can't get out of bed. I don't even know if I can get myself to get up to go eat. I feel like I'm dying. 
Now, I don't exactly know a lot about MS, but I do know it is a very debilitating disease at times. The immune system actually malfunctions and starts to destroy fatty substances that coat and protect nerve fibers throughout your brain and spinal cord. I don't really know what that means, but that sounds fucking painful if you ask me. So I don't want to pretend anymore like I have any idea what this diagnosis is, but I can understand that it probably wasn't easy on Jennifer. Now, because of this and her family being so close with her, Haley, her daughter, was around nine when this happened, but she was determined to help her mother in any way that she could. So she started writing letters to her friends and her family and asked them if they would sponsor her for the annual Connecticut MS walk. Dude, how many fucking nine-year-olds do you know that would go and do that? That's badass. That is just, that is so fucking sweet. And that reminds me of uh, about two years ago, I was having a big flare up with my lupus. I was in bed. I could not get up. And my son comes in there and he just sat by me. He grabbed my hand and he said, mommy, when I grow up, I may want to be a doctor. And I said, oh, that's really cool. It's a lot of schooling, but I will support you the whole way. And he said, I really just want to be able to fix you. I don't want you to be sick anymore. And (laughs) y'all, even right now, I start to get a little bit teary. Yeah. So to say that Haley cared about her mother is just an understatement. She loved her mother and wanted to help. And she did that because she started running this marathon every single year for seven years. She actually raised over $55,000 for her mother's fight against MS. She did this so often that she had a team and her team was called Haley's Hope. That's just, oh my God, my little heart, my cold black heart is just... A little bit of ice milk. Max! Help me! I'm feeling... So Haley was very, very quiet. She was very determined and very smart. Although she had accomplished a lot by the time she was 17, her modesty had actually kind of hindered in a, to an extent of how many people around her were unaware of the achievement, ugh, words, achievements that she could actually occur. <sighs> Y'all words, achieve. So basically she was so like reserved and like introverted that They didn't realize when she put her mind to something, oh my god, she could do it. So when Haley was small, Bill would actually bring her on his rounds to the hospital so that they could spend more time with one another because he was obviously working to be a doctor and doctors have a lot of fucking hours. They don't work nine to five. They work like 17 hours and sleep standing up for 10 minutes and then go back to work. I know, I have friends that are in the medical field. It's tough. So because she would go to work with him, she wanted to follow in his footsteps. And because of this, she was set to go to Dartmouth, which was her father's alma mater. Bill used to go there as well and graduated from there. She was all set to go in September of 2007 to study medicine. Michaela actually would plan to take over raising funds for MS and actually have her own team known as Michaela's Miracle. Michaela was also known for being so thoughtful and having such a gentle nature. She enjoyed cooking for her family and her friends and spending time with those she cared about. She loved gardening with her father. This was like a thing that they did often. Like they would just go out there, spend time with one another, hang out, talk. It seems like her like her and her dad were close and so were Haley and her dad. Like he really made time for them even though he was a doctor and working all the time. This was a very close family, which makes the fact that what happened coming up next on July 22nd so fucking grisly. Now 
to tonight's top story. A mother and her two daughters are dead. Their father severely injured after a home invasion stunned the town of Cheshire. The suspects apparently set the house on fire as well as some of the victims. Jennifer Pettit, her cause of death has been asphyxiation from strangulation. Her daughters Haley and Michaela died from smoke inhalation. On Sunday, July 22nd of 2007, that afternoon, Jennifer and Michaela went out to the grocery store to buy some ingredients for a meal that Michaela wanted to make for her family that night. So as the two were walking through the grocery store, they crossed paths with Joshua. Remember, I told you about him a little bit earlier, he was living in town with his girlfriend Caroline? Well, he sees Jennifer and Michaela and is like, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna follow them home. Now, all the way up until this point, it had been just a normal, typical summer day for the Pettit family. Bill, Jennifer, and Michaela had all gone to church that morning, and then Bill went and played golf with his father that afternoon, while Jennifer and Michaela went to the beach for a bit, they went around and did some errands, they saw some friends, they went up to just, you know, go to the store, they just kind of did what they had to do after church. Haley was actually out with friends at the beach out near uh, Massachusetts, I believe, yeah, it was Ipswich, Massachusetts, so she's there, but they all agreed they were going to come home for dinner, and that's why Michaela was making the family a nice dinner. She actually had planned out this like lovely pasta dish that she was really excited to make for them and that's why they were at the store getting everything ready because it was getting closer for everybody to be home and sit down and talk about the day that they had all had with one another. They were an extremely close family. Now, they did all come home, she made the dinner for everyone, and they sat down, they enjoyed it, and then after dinner, the girls and their mother went to the living room and watched TV for a bit, and then Bill actually ended up falling asleep in their sunroom on the couch. And this is where I need to pause about what went on that day and introduce, in better light, Joshua and his buddy, Steve. I got a phone call here on Monday afternoon from Billy's sister. And I said, Hannah, it's about the girls, isn't it? And she said, these two men came in at what they think was three o'clock in the morning and they beat Billy really badly with a baseball bat and his head's all split apart. And then they proceeded to do all these awful things to the girls and they tied them to their beds. About nine o'clock, Jen was made to go to the bank and withdraw money. And then when she came back from the bank, they set the house on fire and killed them all so that they could try to cover up their tracks, I guess. But they got the two guys. And all I could think was, who cares if they got the two guys? We don't have our loved ones anymore. And that's all we had. Mr. Joshy Boy. Joshua Komisarzewski, I'm saying it slow so you can understand it, at the time was 26 years old and he was adopted as a baby and homeschooled as a child, which I'm not saying anything against because my youngest is currently homeschooled. He was in public schooling until a lovely little bully decided to hit him and the school did absolutely nothing. So I was like, oh, you know what? I work from home. He can be at school at home and I'll make sure that nobody whoops his ass because why the fuck are we throwing hands when we're kids? 
or adults for that fact. Anyways, I'm getting sidetracked. So he was homeschooled and uh, as he got older, it was noticed that he was extremely intelligent. Like he wasn't just your run of the mill average everyday human. This boy was fucking smart. He was in and out of jail, however, and used his wits about him for like burglary and so forth. You know, it was like, oh my God, I'm super smart and I know how to be cunning, except he didn't because he got caught. Anyways, his hope was that he would end up being able to like straighten out his life and then if he could do this, he could become an architect. So basically he was like, you know what, I am tired of breaking the law, I am tired of being a bad man, I'm gonna really straighten up and I am gonna work for what I want for like correctly, I'm not gonna be an asshole and try to rob people for their, what they have. He really was gonna do this until he wasn't. In 2002, Joshua would have a daughter. And then, in the spring of 2007, he would actually gain full custody of her as his ex-girlfriend was in rehab for her drug addiction. However, when he did get custody of her, she actually would go live with his parents. Yeah, just, you know what, we're gonna continue about him because uh, also in 2007, he started dating his girlfriend, Caroline Messel. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Now, as I said, he was 26 years old, and would you like to take a little jab at how old his brand new girlfriend was? 18! Yes, I know, that's legal harmony, but also, it's still fucking nasty. When I was 26, I had nothing in common with an 18-year-old. Oh my god, you just got out of high school? Fantastic! I'm tired of drinking alcohol, because that's what I've been doing for a few years. What do you want to do in life? Oh, you want to go drink alcohol? Cool, I'm gonna go hang out on an arcade. Bye! Literally, you don't have a whole lot in common, but whatever. He was like, oh shit, she's adorable because she's still in diapers, Joshua, sorry. Now, their relationship actually became really serious really quickly, like almost codependent, if you know what I'm saying. The two actually began contemplating marriage within a matter of like fucking weeks. However, Caroline's father, Caroline, <clears throat> I'm so sorry. Yeah, he was like, no. Mm -mm. you're not marrying my daughter, dude. I don't even approve of you dating her and you want to marry her? Fuck off, you per. Seriously, he didn't like Joshua. He actually completely disapproved of him. This is because he knew all about Joshua's poor reputation of being a known criminal. So naturally, he was like, yeah, that doesn't seem like something I would like my daughter getting involved with. Sorry about that. And as a parent, I understand when I was a young girl, I didn't understand. I'd be like, oh my God, but he's so dreamy. <laughs> Meanwhile, my parents are like, yeah, but uh, did you not hear? He just robbed a fucking bank, but he's so cute. He's just troubled, he's a bad boy. I'm totally joking, by the way. I was just trying to make y'all laugh. However, he really wasn't the best news for this 18-year-old who her parents wanted her to, I don't know, not be involved with a possible person who's just breaking the law all the time. Most parents don't want that for their kids. Now, here's another thing. As I stated, yes, he was 26 years old and yes, Caroline, Caroline, I'm so sorry. She was 18, so okay, it's legal. But also, it's still kind of gross. And that's exactly how her father saw it. He was like, dude, yeah, okay, it's legal and all, but he's a fucking pedophile. Like, he actually told Joshua and Caroline that he thought Joshua was a pedophile. He believed that he was only interested in Caroline because she looked so young for her age. Not older, young. Oh my god, that's so fucking gross! Okay, if you thought Joshua was bad, <laughs> let me go ahead and tell you about Steven. Steven Hayes, who was 44 at the time, well, his, his parents were divorced, and when he was a child, he actually lived with his mother and his two brothers, Matthew and Brian. According to Steven's brother, Matthew, he was manipulated from a young age. 
Matthew said that Stephen, from a very young age, was actually very manipulative and also very violent. He would taunt his little brother and then pressure him to do certain things and actually put like a gun to Matthew's head was just like, <laughs> bitch, trigger, trigger, boom, boom. And while this was happening, he was a fucking child, like a little kid, like just, just a little wee one. He would also claim that he was suffering from psychological problems, but his family was kind of more like, I don't know, it sounds like you're kind of making that up. It sounds like you were being an asshole and you just don't want to apologize and you're just like, oh my god, had a really rough day today, if you know what I'm saying, and I just had a mental breakdown. Okay, well listen here, Steve, if you're having a mental breakdown, you usually cry and grab some ice cream, or maybe you might go nonverbal, maybe you're gonna shake a little bit, but you're not gonna throw a gun to somebody's head. That's not a mental breakdown, that's just being an asshole. Or, I don't know, attempted murder or whatever. Tomato, tomato. However, everyone who knew him, including his family, labeled Stephen as being, uh, I guess you could call cunning and calculating, that he's not sick, he has no mental issues, he's just a very bad man. In 1992, Stephen would have his own daughter, Alicia. Now, Alicia's mother and Stephen were divorced and she lived with her mother, but she did see her father every single week. Unlike Mr. Joshua, Stephen was in his daughter's life. And she actually described her father as being very good to her, never displaying or showing any violent or even aggressive sides. Which is really, really weird, seeing as how he would brutally murder three people and leave another one hanging on for dear life. It's from England somewhere. The hardest thing I think I've ever had to do in my life was to tell my parents that one of their other children, their only other child, was dead. And their two grandchildren, two of their four, she quickly told us that the home was set on fire, but Bill escaped. We went to the hospital and got to see Bill for the first time. He was badly beaten, and he tried to apologize to us for not saving our daughter and, uh, and our grandchildren. And we had to convince him that he was in no condition to be able to save anyone, and we were grateful. That he was alive. That he was alive. Right. Mr. Stevie Boy and Mr. Joshy Josh met in 2006. This is when the pair actually shared a room in a halfway house in Hartford, Connecticut. At this point in time, the two were actually in between different prison sentences. So the pair is obviously a dastardly duo. Sorry, I just really wanted to say that. Anywho's, by the age of 26, Joshua had been arrested for 18 home invasions and struggled with a very severe crystal meth addiction. Or an incorrect feeling. I sometimes have a feeling I can do crystal meth, but then I think, mm, better not. Uh, yeah. I am in rare form today, so y'all, I hope you're enjoying the random audios. So not only did Joshua have a, uh, a crippling addiction to crystal meth, but Mr. Stevie Boy was a recovering crack addict. Stevie Boy was also a seasoned burglar who mainly broke into cars during the broad daylight hours. He had no fucking fear. He was like, oh, is anyone looking? Nope. All right. Da -dip. This is my car now, bitch. Actually, he didn't steal the cars. He just took everything from inside of them. He would actually steal anything of high value that he could find. 
Side note, for anyone out there who thinks that these things can never happen to you, I do want to share with you something very real. These things can very much happen to you any point in time. Please, by all means, I implore you, no matter what you do, no matter what you forget to do in life, always remember to lock your doors, be it to your car or your house. Wherever you are, have your cars locked because people are fucking monsters. Just in case you don't get the moral of every story that I share with you, people are bad most of the time. Okay, let's continue. So now that we know that the two are basically fueled by bad decisions and drugs, we can see where this is going. The two were both serving sentences for, well, burglary and they both ended up finding and getting parole in April of 2007. Originally, Joshua had been charged with over 12 counts of burglary and sentenced to nine years in prison in December of 2002. And yes, I said prison, I meant to say prison. Let's just ignore that, okay, thank you. However, he would actually end up being paroled early after he served a total of maybe not even five years. Side note, I do think that people should not have their sentences shortened because of good behavior. If one thing I've learned in all of my research is that good behavior is just a little fucking front. Most of the time, these little asshats that are locked up for really heinous shit are going to be a repeat offender. They're not gonna learn their lesson because you were like, oh my god, we're gonna lock you up, you did a bad thing. They're gonna go, you're right, I did, I'm never gonna do it again. And then with a matter of months of being released, they are going to do it again. Again, I do believe in rehabilitation, but when it comes to murder, I don't fucking know if I do, I'm sorry. But also, especially if that murder was planned. <clears throat> I'm gonna continue because I'm spoiling the end. So, this dastardly duo had both been released on parole, you know, because they were just being so good while they were in prison. Both men ended up being at a halfway house, like I stated, and uh, they were enjoying life in a sense. Stephen actually moved to Winston, Connecticut with his mother, and then Joshua returned home to Cheshire. There was then some talk between the two, mainly, you know, on the part of Joshua reaching out, and uh, they started having somewhat of an idea. They were like, you know what we should do? You're a bad guy. I'm a bad guy. We're both fucking villains. Maybe we should, like, take our villainacity, is that, is that a word? And, like, merge it together. Let's go into business. Well, this sounds like it can't go wrong. However, they say that nothing actually came from this because originally they were like, we should go into contracting business, you know, like, let's be legit. But let's be real, they didn't want to actually work, they just wanted the money. So they were like, mm, better not. You see, Stevie's situation wasn't really ideal. His younger brother at the time of all of this was sleeping on the floor at their mother's house. And she was so stressed, she was also basically threatening to kick Steve out because, well, he was using her car, he wasn't really doing it, he was really moochy, okay? And he was also not exactly the best person, you know, been arrested a lot, couldn't exactly kick the habit of his uh, crack addiction, you know, he was recovering, but also he was known to relapse, which we understand, if you're an addict, you do relapse, except he never really wanted to get the help and he continued to rob people, so his mom was kind of like, like, hey, not under my roof, boy. Not really, shouldn't say it like that. But she had told him that she was going to ask him to leave. Not even really ask him to leave, but she was basically letting him know you couldn't use the car, but you also, if you continued being, well, basically a big fucking bad person, you're gonna have to leave. Thank you very much, but This is what I think really started the plan. I think these two men were at such a point in their lives that they were like, oh shit, it's, it's about to like, it's bad, man, it's, it's bad. So instead of the two thinking that they could pick up their act and do something for their life and themselves, they decided to come up with something that would destroy the lives of several.
sister, she was beautiful, and she was usually like the lead in the plays at school. She was on the homecoming court. She was captain of the Trojanette team. So she really was kind of like a winner person. Bill was a committed, dedicated doctor, would leave at uh, seven o'clock in the morning and not be back at home until maybe nine, nine thirty. When Jen was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, Haley really wanted to raise money because she felt like if she didn't do anything, it was possible that her mother could die. Haley was able to raise a little over $50,000 being a spokesperson uh, for the MS Society here in Connecticut, uh, receiving awards for that, although you'd never know it. I hardly knew about Haley helping with MS, and that was just because she was just so quiet about everything, and she could have bragged about everything she did. I mean, she was a straight-A student. I think about her all the time. It's hard not to think about her. You'll find just something to relate to her about. Although the two were no longer sharing their little bedroom in the halfway house, Stephen and Joshua were staying in touch. Neither Josh nor Steve had any real steady job. Both of them were getting random and irregular contracting gigs just to have some funds to make sure they could get by. They did still both need money because these little odds and end jobs weren't coming enough for them to really get by. Joshua's girlfriend, as we know, was basically a toddler, and she was still living with her family. She actually ended up moving back with her family to Arkansas because he was determined that he was going to make enough money to get her to come back to Connecticut. There was like this whole thing where she was like, hey, basically, you can't take care of me. And he was like, no, but I can. She's like, well, I'm going to go home because I'm also still a teenager. And like, I'm still covered by my parents because again, still a teenager, child at fact. Uh, so you have a good life, I'm gonna go. And he's like, no, Caroline, Caroline. I'm just kidding. But he was like, uh, no, I got you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you that I can do this and I'm gonna get a real job. I'm gonna raise money. Baby, don't leave me. Come back to me. Sorry. No, but for real, he was telling her that he was gonna come up with the money and he was gonna provide for her. And that, I think, is what really started the point. The thing is, though, he didn't also know that Stevie Boy was just as desperate for cash. Steven was kind of hitting a rough spatch. Spatch? Spatch? I was trying to say spot and patch, and I said spatch. So Steve was in dire need of a way to make some fast and easy cash. And this is where Joshua and Steve, I guess, decide they should finally go into business together because they both could benefit greatly. Although anyone that they would come in contact with in their little endeavors would absolutely not benefit. On the evening of July 21st, Stephen accompanied Joshua on a, uh, let's call it a test run burglary. You know, like a little trial of events, a little like how-to. So on this dry run, they broke into a home while Steve decided to wait outside. You know, he was like, he was like the watch, you know, I got your back, you go inside, you get some good shit, I got you, I'll let you know, I'll do it like a if a fucking person shows up, okay? Now, Joshua got inside, no problem. He didn't take a whole lot either. The main objective was to show Steven just how easy it would be for his role in all of this. All he had to do was keep watch. And with him realizing just how simple this was and the easy money that could come with it, he was sold. Now, I would like to share with you a conversation that took place on the night of the 22nd. 
At around 7.45 in the evening, Stephen texted Joshua saying, I'm chomping at the bit to get started. Need a margarita soon. He waited about an hour, but he didn't get any reply back from his buddy old pal Josh. So at 8.45, Stephen wrote to Josh again. He said, we still on? Almost right away, Joshua said, yes. Stephen replied with, uh, soon? To which Joshua replied with, I'm putting the kid to bed, hold your horses. Instantly, Steven thought he was hilarious when he said, Dude, the horses want to get loose, lol. Oh my god, Steven is so funny. I almost forgot to laugh because they're talking about murdering people in case you hadn't caught on yet. Well, technically, I don't think they were actually talking about murder. I think that they were just like, oh my God, we are going to make so much money because we're going to break into most unsuspecting people's houses and just rob them of all of their good shit and go pawn it and just be billionaires. I want to be millionaires so freaking bad. That's what they were like. However, sadly, the one thing that I don't think either of them knew was just how far Mr. Joshua would be willing to go to not get caught. Or maybe it was Steven. I don't really know who decided, but let's just say if they were gonna rob you, they would also have no problem killing you. Apparently these, these two losers followed Jennifer Hawk Pettit and her 11-year-old daughter to the Stop and Shop on Sunday night. They followed them. And the first Cheshire police officer to arrive at the scene heard at least one of the girls screaming from inside the house. Those animals, what they did to those poor people uh, in Cheshire, uh, I can't even believe that they're going to give them a trial. Why, what kind of laws do we have in this state where they don't just execute those animals? Well, Tony, the, the, the reaction by the public certainly is for that. It is now the night of July 22nd. After what was only, I can imagine, a wonderful family dinner that Michaela had made for everyone, they had all retired respectively, and around 11 p.m., the girls headed up to their bed after, you know, they had watched TV with their mother. Bill was actually still asleep on the couch in the sunroom. Michaela actually got into bed with her mom, Jennifer, and decided to sleep next to her for a bit. And then Haley was like, no, I'm just going to go to my room. So they all kind of split up and were sleeping and doing their own things. At some point, not sure when, but Bill woke up. However, even though he woke up, he decided, you know, I'm just going to stay sleeping on the couch because I'm super comfy and I'm so tired. I do not want to get up, which I'm sure you've been there before. I can't tell you how many times I have randomly fallen asleep, especially with my son in his room. I'll just wake up sometimes. I'm like, oh, I'm too tired to walk across the house. Okay. So he didn't want to get up, not only because he was tired, but he also didn't want to wake up his wife. So he just stayed right there on the couch. This now brings us to the very grim aspect of what is about to occur. The real reason you're here. You see, those horses that Stephen wanted to get out, the things that Joshua and Stephen had been discussing were about to come to a boiling point, to a tip that evening. First, though, it seems as though Stephen was just under the impression that the two of them were going to burglarize the home. Maybe take the family out of the car, tie them up, give them a scare, maybe even burn the house down and destroy the evidence, leave nothing really behind. But, but, <laughs> nobody was going to get hurt. You know, like, they were going to spare the people, the family. They were going to be fine. They just wanted to make sure it wouldn't be tied to them. So they were going to take everything they could and then burn down any sign that they had ever 
been there. The family would have to give their word of who had what, like you know, who had done it and what had happened. But by then, they'd be long gone because they'd be rich. However, of course, like you would think, this was a naive fucking plan and stupid to all get up. And of course, it wouldn't go the way that they had hoped. So it is now three o'clock in the morning, July 23rd, and Stephen and Joshua have now gained access into the Pettit family home. The duo was armed with a gun and a baseball bat. This baseball bat, in fact, was one that they had found lying in the neighbor's yard. When they did enter the house, they found Bill asleep on the couch in the sunroom. Immediately, Joshua Kamisharzewski begins hitting him repeatedly across the head with the baseball bat extremely hard. Joshua then tells Bill not to panic, but that they only wanted money. You know, he's like, hey, I'm gonna knock you out a few fucking times. It's a bat to the skull, but also, don't worry, don't worry. There's nothing to be freaking out about. I just want your money. He asked him where the safe was in the house, and Bill tried to reply that there wasn't a safe. Of course, he had been fucking battered across the head, so he's kind of like, oh, I don't have one. Josh is like, bullshit, you're fucking loaded, obviously, where the fuck is it? Getting so frustrated, this dastardly duo ends up tying Bill's wrists together and his ankles and left him on the couch, bound and fucking bleeding out of his skull profusely. I'm sure the pair was like, whatever, he's gonna fucking die, I don't care, and just peaced out because they were determined, remember, they were there for a reason. They wanted money and they needed the money, so they made their way through the house, and this is where it gets even worse. Destroy a family the way those two did. Heinous. My verdict? Fry them. Hang them. Do whatever you gotta do. Make sure they ain't gonna walk this earth again. Can we switch? Yeah. You need more? Yeah. I don't think evil like this has happened since in cold blood. I really don't, not that I know of. And we went from being a quiet, peaceful town in New England to overnight people installing alarm systems and panic buttons and panic rooms. People in town refer to it as Cheshire's 9-11. You know, life was one way and then it's another. Before we go any farther, I do want to say something, guys. Listen, I love making this content for you. I love sharing these things with you because the reality of the situations that go on around our world are grim, dark, and disgusting. We, as a society, and we as humans, are fucking horrible. The fact that I have to sit and choose crimes every week because there's such a mass amount of them just absolutely flabbergasts me. The fact that there are people out there that are willing to do such dastardly shit to others is grotesque on many, many levels. I understand that we as humans are selfish, manipulative, and not exactly always the best. But I do draw my line at murder, and I absolutely, positively cannot understand, fathom, nor tolerate anyone that doesn't only just murder, but without reason is unjustifiably so heinous, especially to children. So. Before we go any farther, I would like to put in a trigger warning. Obviously, I talk about murder and very, very horrible shit in this podcast every single week. And if you've been here for a while, you know that I don't often talk about children. 
It is very tough for me. Every once in a while, I will, but it doesn't come without a cost. This shit fucks me up. So, here is your warning. What I'm about to share with you is gross, it's horrible, and it happened. That is your warning. We are beginning. These two men made their way upstairs where they found Jennifer in her bed with Michaela. They immediately tied Jennifer's wrist and her ankles to the bedpost and put a pillowcase over her head. They dragged Michaela out of her mother's bed and into her bedroom and did the exact same thing to her. They then went into Haley's room and tied her up as well to her bed. As this is happening, these women are freaking out. The two young girls, with of course justification, are absolutely hysterical and Jennifer is so worried. However, she is assured, just like her husband, that they were not going to get hurt. The men only wanted money. They were only there to rob them. Nobody was gonna get hurt. Obviously, this was a fucking lie, but Jennifer wasn't really aware that her husband was bleeding to death downstairs. At this point, Joshua and Steve were making their way back downstairs. Immediately, they rush over to Bill, who is still laying on the couch, bleeding from his head wound, you know, because he was clocked upside the head with a fucking bat. They cut his restraints and they force him down into the basement at gunpoint. Once they're down there, Bill is then tied to a pole. His ankles are still bound and he is uh, covered with blankets. And the men sort of, they start talking. They start feeling like, kind of like, all right, we're a little frustrated. At this point, Bill actually starts getting woozy because he has lost so much blood. So much so that he is drifting in and out of consciousness while Steve and Joshua are trying to figure out what the fuck they're going to do. This whole home invasion isn't turning out like it was planned to. At this point, the two men begin ransacking this house. They are checking any and every single place that they believe that anyone would ever put cash, even like a fucking freezer in the toilet, anywhere. This couldn't be a bust. They had to have something. Even though they were searching high and low, they found absolutely nothing. However, they did find bank statements and it showed that they had about $30,000 in their bank, which means, okay, uh, you should have some money in the house, right? Like, you're not working paycheck to paycheck, so like, where's that? Because they weren't finding anything, this is where the plan changes. Y'all, I'm gonna be honest, my words just got all jumbled. I actually just recorded this and at the very end, I just got all tongue-tied. So let me try this again. Because he found the statements that their bank stating that they had $30,000, he decided, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna send Jennifer to the bank when it opens at nine and she's gonna go withdraw everything that she can. He decided he was going to actually force her to get $15,000 exactly from her account. This was now the new plan and it was just about to begin. But before it could, Steven actually had to go up to the gas station. He was headed up there with two plastic canisters that he was going to fill with gas. Side note, it only cost him $10 <laughs> to fill up these. Yeah, that's a note I wanted to write because that was in all of the uh, news because gas was so expensive. <laughs> I'm crying. $10 to fill up fucking containers. Shut up. <clears throat> Sorry. So once he got back home, he dropped off the gas canisters and then he went back out again. This is when he went out with Jennifer to the bank, letting her know if she complied and did everything they asked, nobody would be hurt. Jennifer approached the bank teller. She leaned in and passed a note over the counter. The teller takes the note, looks at it, and without hesitating, hands it to the bank manager. The manager immediately runs to her office and then Jennifer leaves the bank. 
She makes the way back to the car and Steven drives the two back to the house. As Jennifer leaves the bank, the bank manager calls 911 and this is approximately 9.21 in the morning. The dispatcher is informed and aware of the situation now that Jennifer may most likely be under some what of duress because Jennifer had also told the bank teller that men were holding her and her family hostage. She said, quote, they were being nice and only wanted money. I don't think Jennifer was aware of the situation going on with Bill at the time. After 911 dispatch was made aware of the situation, police were sent out to the Pettit address. Slowly and very, very carefully, unmarked vehicles approached the situation at the house. They didn't enter the house immediately. In fact, they stayed behind trees not too far from the house. And what is heard is horrible. Again, I'm gonna tell you, you can pause for a moment and decide if you'd like to continue. Because again, <laughs> it's not gonna get better. It's about to get really bad. I'd really like to say thank you to people from all over the state of Connecticut and all over the country. We've been surrounded with love and cards and flowers and prayer uh, from east to west and north to south. I met Jen at uh, Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh for med. She was a, a new nurse and I was the know-it-all third-year medical student. I was trying to correct Jen on how to take the blood pressure the correct way. <laughs> Since I had about three minutes of experience at that point. <laughs> but it became clear pretty quickly that uh, she knew more about pediatrics and how to care for kids than I had ever known. One of the nice things in the Billy recent had was never smelled smoke. He had never seen a fire. He had said that the only thing he ever heard of my sister was her like pleading nicely with these two men. Can you please let me get my purse or they'll know that something is up at the bank. He had his legs tied together and he hopped up the outside basement steps and he said, but sometimes I wish I would have just gone to the inside because then maybe even if I had died in there, I could have done something. And I said, no, Billy, you couldn't have done anything. The following segment of this podcast contains very sensitive information. Please skip over if you are easily triggered. Okay, now, there is a lot of controversy surrounding the way that the police handled the situation from this point. As they were all setting up the perimeter, Joshua was inside the home raping Michaela as she was laying tied to her bed. I'm sorry, I, uh, I really hate talking about this kind of stuff. It's so fucking nasty. It's just disgusting. He then proceeded, I'm so sorry, as a mother, this just kills me. Um, he then proceeded to take explicit pictures of this child, this child on his cell phone. He went downstairs to find Steven, his fucking sick buddy, had returned back with Jen. Joshua showed Steven the pictures that he had just taken of Michaela like some sick trophy. 
taunting him to do the same to Jen. He was like, oh my god, look what I did. I can't, oh my god. So, naturally, Steven was like, oh, of course, you did that, all right. And he pushed Jen down into the living room floor and begins to rape her brutally. Sorry, I have to pause for a moment. As somebody who was assaulted a few times in her life, this is very difficult. Okay, so Joshua leaves the room. And upon his return, he is informed that, uh, well, Bill's escaped, by the way. Oh no, <laughs> whoopsies. While well, they were doing really bad, fucked up shit, uh, the other fucked up thing that they had done got away. At this point, Steven loses it. He is freaking out. He's like, oh my fucking God. He looks out the window and he notices, oh shit, there are cops outside. Oh, we done stepped in the shit. At that point, he puts his hand around Jennifer's neck and he strangles her to death. He does this without feeling or remorse, but I don't know what I expected of him because he also just got done raping her because he wanted to show his sick fucking buddy that he could be just as heinous. Meanwhile, having escaped through an area and a hatch in the basement, basically like doors that come out of the ground, Bill got out. Bill, just because he's out and running doesn't mean he's in any sort of good shape. He was horribly beaten. So as he's stumbling through the yard, he gets into the neighbor's driveway and he's bleeding heavily and barely able to speak. His neighbor came out of the house and sees Bill initially and he doesn't recognize him because obviously he's covered in blood with his head split open. The neighbor immediately is like, oh my god, I think I need to call the cops and does that. Without any sign of anything, a policeman just abruptly appears and is like, oh, I'm gonna take care of this, and looks at Bill and is like, hey, what the hell's going on? Obviously, Bill can't speak. The neighbor's like, oh, wait a second, I didn't even hit 911. Where the fuck did you come from? Because apparently, the police knew that there was some sort of situation. Remember? Because the bank teller, you know, that little note, but they were just watching just sitting and watching not acting nope just trying to figure out their plan now as all this is going on the cop is trying to ask bill what is happening what's going on can you tell me anything of course bill having a split open skull and bleeding so much so that he is barely able to move stand speak anything he has lost so much blood he is literally trying to shout his daughter's names like yelling but all that's happening is grunts and noises could you imagine could you fucking imagine what if this was your child and this had happened and you were trying and all you could do was not. Sadly, at this point, it was too late. It wouldn't matter if the police had gotten in or not. It was too late. Once Stephen killed Jennifer, he poured gasoline all over her body. He covers as much of the home as he can with all the gasoline that he had, including over Haley and Michaela's bodies as they were still tied to their beds with pillowcases over their heads. Stephen then sets the house ablaze. Immediately, the two men attempt to escape with the Pettit's family car. However, they're in such a hurry, obviously all sorts of disheveled because the plan went awry, that as they're leaving the driveway, they crash into the police barriers. Immediately, this duo is detained. By the time the firefighters arrive at the scene, flames had completely engulfed the top floor of the house. Three people were dead inside of the home. Jennifer had been strangled inside of the living room. 
While Haley and Michaela had died of smoke inhalation as they were tied to their beds after being brutally raped and tortured with pillowcases over them. However, I do want to make one little thing. Haley had actually managed to escape her restraints and she actually got down to the landing of her stairs, but this is where she had collapsed. And that is where her body was found because that is where she passed away. However, her sister, her young sister, was still lying in her bed, just as she was left by Josh. I'm a very detective-like person. I like to know details. And until I know the details around things, it's hard to figure things out. I would like to know why my sister and Stephen Hayes weren't stopped at the bank, why she wasn't held at the bank, There were some police officers that, off the record, said to people in the town that they heard the girls screaming in the end. Did they try to enter? Did they not try to enter? And why weren't there policemen looking in the windows? My sister had no blinds on her windows. I just want the facts. And nobody has told us what really happened. Stephen described to detectives what happened in the home just several hours after he and Joshua were taken in. He went on to describe how he had taken Jen to the bank, raped and then strangled her, and then doused her body, Haley's and Michaela's, in gasoline. Reports would actually vary as to who lit the match, but both men were pointing the finger at the other, because obviously. I didn't do it, he did. No, he did it. If you ask me, they're both guilty because they're pieces of human garbage. Steven told the detectives that after Josh had showed him the pictures that he had taken of Michaela and seeing the police car outside the house, he just snapped. This is when he says he lost control. He said that he didn't blame Joshua for like what had happened. However, he only had himself to blame because he's the one who chose to kill. That's what he said. He insisted that regardless of all that had happened, he had only wanted that night to end with money, not murder. Joshua admitted to following Jennifer and Michaela in the grocery store the day before and that when they left, he followed them home. So this way, he knew where they lived. He said that the reason he actually targeted them was because they looked like they were wealthy and they had a nice car and a big house. He admitted to bludgeoning Bill with the baseball bat that he found in the neighbor's yard. And then he admitted to raping and taking explicit pictures of Michaela, who not only was a fucking minor, but also was lying dead. So, you know, was he an accomplice? Was he not? But he says that when it comes to burning down the house, mm -mm, that wasn't his idea. That was all an act that Steven did. He said that he never would have burned a house down with the people inside. He told detectives that that was all Steven. He was like, mm -mm, no, if I was going to burn the house down, I'd make sure there's nobody inside. I'm not a monster. <laughs> okay. He did report, though, that he didn't say anything to stop him. He said, yeah, I wouldn't have done it, but it's not like I made him not do it. I didn't go, oh no, don't do that. You know, like before he went to the gas station, maybe when he came back with the, the gas at any point, Joshua could have been like, yo, 
I got some pictures to show you, but also, why do you have gas? Yeah, no, we're not gonna, we don't need to do that. Like, we already fucked his family up. You really think we should do that? I don't think so. He didn't do that. He didn't, he didn't stop it at all. Give me one moment. You guys are gonna hear some audio and I'll be back because my son just walked in. And for anyone wondering, no, he can't hear this. So originally, Stephen and Joshua agreed to a plea bargain that would give them life in prison without the possibility of parole. When the defense presented the deal to the prosecution, however, they did not agree to that either men should have the option. They wanted to pursue the death penalty in both cases. Because of what they had done and what had all happened that day, they believed the heinous acts that had been inflicted on that family deserved the ability to have death on the table. This meant that these two men were now gonna go on trial, and in Connecticut, that is trial by jury. Stephen's trial began on October 18th of 2010. Thomas Ullman, who was his attorney, told the jury that being given a life sentence would be the worst punishment for Stephen. Oh my god, my heart just aches for him. Sorry, I was trying to give a moment of silence, but I also don't care about him. Yeah, he said that uh, basically it would be so much worse for him. It's even worse than a death sentence because he was tortured every single day with the actions of what he had done. However, the jury didn't really feel any sort of sadness for him. They weren't like, oh my God, this poor man, he feels so bad for like brutally murdering a mother and her two kids and he raped the mom. Oh my God. I can see he's really changed. No, mm -mm. they said, sorry, bitch, but you're dying. So he was actually given the verdict of death. In December of 2010, Stephen took it upon himself to apologize to the Pettit family for the pain that he had caused. He said, death for me will be a welcome relief and I hope it will bring some peace and comfort to those I have hurt so much. Aww, <laughs> shove it up your ass. I mean, I do appreciate that he apologized, but as a human who studies this sort of, this corn of, this sort of stuff for a living, I kind of believe that sometimes when these really bad and vile fucking humans that can cross the lines of things that I can't even fucking fathom, I don't think they mean it. I think they're just like, oh shit, I got caught. <laughs> I guess I gotta put on a face. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but also if I never got caught, I would totally do it again. Like that is how I see them. So shove your bullshit I'm sorry's in a sack and blow it out your ass, Steven. Anyhows, this brings us to Joshua and his trial. His trial began on October 13th of 2011. During his hearing, Joshua stood by what he had said in his confession. He said that he never planned on killing anyone that night. He also added that, quote, I will never find peace within. My life will be a continuation of the hurt that I caused. The clock is now ticking and I owe a debt that I cannot repay. Oh my God, how dramatic. You can tell he's definitely so sorrowful for what he did. Or again, like I said, he could just be acting. The jury came to the conclusion that also Joshua should die for what he did. In August of 2015, however, Connecticut abolished the death penalty because for some reason, even though the verdict was done in 2011, four years had gone by and the men were still very much alive. Which means because the death penalty was now gone, you know, we have to spare all those brutal murderers and child rapists because their feelings matter. We had to be so humane. <laughs> They don't get to die now. So they are currently serving life sentences without the possibility of parole. Ooh, what justice. Yes, I know this is like, okay, an ending. They are locked up and they can't do this again. 
but three people are gone forever. Never, ever, ever, ever to live or enjoy, enjoy, enjoy a day again with anyone that they care about. People are left mourning them. All while Steven and Joshua, as they say, have to live with the horrors of what they caused. <laughs> no, they don't. They're probably fucking beating off to that sh Sorry. That is just honestly what I believe because if you look into this case and you read and you just find out about how these men were and the actual file shit that was stated that had occurred, there's no way that a decent human would have ever done anything and planned the shit that they did. I do want to state that Joshua's defense team did file a motion for him to be given a new trial because, you know, <laughs> he didn't mean it. They argued that on the basis the trial should not have taken place in Cheshire because, you know, that's where it all occurred. And so obviously people were already upset and angry because, well, he killed some people that belonged to that community. So they weren't really happy with him. Therefore, the jury wasn't exactly very, uh, I guess they were biased, you know, because like most people that commit murders, they don't want anyone to like look at them badly. You know, like, how dare anyone go, oh, you killed somebody? That's not good. No, no, you need to come into this with, like, an open mind. At least that's how the fucking bad people of the stories look at it. Come on, you gotta see my side. I was just, like, really going through a hard time, so <laughs> I killed a bunch of people. I'm sorry, though, okay? I said I was sorry. Jeez, what more do you want? Anyways, this motion would be denied, and they would still stick to their life sentences. Hayes didn't ever try to appeal what happened. Like, he didn't try to argue. He was just like, fine, all right, at least I'm not dying. I don't really want to answer any questions. I I feel I feel so sad that uh, my answers are going to be more I don't know if any of the other defense team have a death row now. Uh, there will be automatic appeals. There will be appeals upon appeals. Uh, this will go on for years and years and years. And, uh, We offered to plead guilty to every charge in the information against us, so long as death wasn't the result. And so Joshua would have been sentenced to life without the possibility of release. It would have happened, you know, three weeks after the crime had taken place. Joshua would have disappeared into the into the great abyss of the of the penal system, and would never be heard from again. But that wasn't serious enough punishment for the state. And, and of course the state was being goaded on by Dr. Pettit. And so we had to go through three years of Hayes and Joshua and just forcing the people of Connecticut to relive that crime day after day after day, I think sort of kind of coarsened the social fabric of Connecticut. It would have been so much better just to throw those guys in jail and throw away the key, but. difficult thing that I had to do in my life was to bury my own child and two grandchildren. I don't think there will ever be closure for our family. Jennifer was too much of a giving, loving person. And I don't think that we will ever, ever 
if we live another hundred years, would ever want to forget her. So if closure brings forgetting, I don't want that closure. There you have it. The heartbreaking, horrible, disgusting, absolutely heinous murder of the Pettit family. Joshua and Stephen are absolute horrible humans and they are rotting in prison. Thankfully so. Too bad I do wish they were dead, but you know what? <laughs> Beggars can't be choosers. Well, at least they're locked up. Which is more than I can say for some cases that I have found, read, and learned about where even worse acts have occurred and people are still free today. So yes, I'm angry about how the justice played out, as I'm sure many of you are out there, but at least there was some form of justice, and at least the family of the Pettits can move forward knowing that Joshua and Stephen are behind bars for the rest of their natural lives. Although this will not bring back Jennifer, Michaela, and Haley, it does ensure that nobody else will die by the hands of those two men. Well, I hope you guys, as dark as it is, enjoyed this episode. As always, if you'd like to, you can send me an email at harmony, oh, pff, not harmony, that is my work email that you guys don't need to write. You can send me a message at what the actual EFF harmony at gmail.com. Sorry, I also have my own art company and I do have an art email and speaking of which my phone just went off. So I'm going to go ahead and go. I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day and I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. I know, I know, kind of ironic seeing as how I talk about murder. Anyways, stay safe guys and remember to please lock your door because I don't ever want to tell one of these stories about you. Love you guys. Talk to you next time.